Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in Political Science on the New Books Network. My name is Ryan Riley, and today I'm speaking with Aaron Leipart. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego, and past president of the American Political Science Association. We discuss his recently updated book, Patterns of Democracy, published by Yale University Press in 2012. The book is a study of 36 countries over the period 1945 to 2010. It measures the extent to which institutions concentrate power or share power, and the consequences that follow for government performance and the quality of democracy. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining me. You're very welcome, Ryan. I'd like to begin by asking you how you came to be interested in the study of democracies. Well, Ryan, it it, it happened in a kind of a step-by-step progression I became interested in the question of what held the society in which I grew up, uh, Dutch society, uh, because there were very deep divisions between religious and ideological groups, basically Catholics, uh, Protestants, Calvinist Protestants, and uh, secular uh, people. And the theory until uh, that time was that if you have deeply divided society, basically you can you cannot have a working democratic system. And uh, so I, I found here an example of a deeply divided society with a, a democratic system that worked quite well. The, the basic reason was what has come to be called power sharing. That is to say, when you have a deeply divided society, it's not only political scientists or other outsiders that look at that society and find that there are risks and all, all kinds of problems in, involved in such a such deep division. But, of course, the political leaders and other leaders of the society recognize that as well. And if they want to counteract them, how do they counteract it? Well, basically, it be- becomes a question of just tolerating each other and just deciding to work together in spite of uh, the disagreements so that the governments become power-sharing governments in which all of the people are represented. So typically, that kind of society that I found in the Netherlands also would have elections by proportional representation so that the different ethnic, religious, and ling- linguistic groups, if you have them in a society, can have a representation according to the strength uh, in the in the society, and so the next step then was, uh, hey, is, is 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 Dutch society unique? And when you when I started looking around, I found no, there are other examples of that. And my my next examples that I looked at were Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, and then beyond uh, Europe, I found examples in, in Lebanon and Malaysia, uh, and 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 so on. Now, without going into all of these specific examples, the basic answer in all of these cases was uh, the idea of mutual toleration if they cannot find complete agreement and power sharing, trying to live together and and govern a society in in spite of these differences. Then the next step for me was to to think, can we use the the distinction between power sharing type of governmental systems 
and the, the more the better known at that time majoritarian systems where it's simply a question of the majority chooses a government and the majority rules and everybody is uh, is out of power and I started thinking what what are the different institutions that would be used for power sharing on the one hand and majoritarianism on, on the other hand and I found of course that that has to do with the electoral system is it a majoritarian system or is it a proportional system has to do with the kind of party system that you have. Is it a, a two-party system? As in, in Britain, where you typically have a majority party that's in power and a minority party that's out of power. Or is it uh, a government that is a coalition of different parties representing different groups? And so that became the book that I published in 1984, a long time ago, uh, simply called Democracies, which was a um, comparison of, of 21 uh, countries, mainly in Europe, but also included the United States and Canada and Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, is Israel. Uh, the, the next step after that was to draw in more uh, more countries, and um, I published a book in 1999 called Patterns of Democracy, and uh, I just recently published a, a revised and updated uh, edition of, of that still. Uh, comparing 36 uh, countries, and the main themes of that, and you may have uh, you have, may have more questions about that, was to point out that that when you look at the different governmental institutions, I already mentioned the question of government is the coalition government, one-party government, the elect the electoral system, uh, the, the kind of interest group system that they have whether it is it federalism, the kind of legislature that different countries have, you, you find that there are there's a lot of variation between countries, but there's still, there still patterns, and these things hang together. So, for instance, if you have a proportional electoral system, you're likely to have a multi-party system, you're likely to have coalition uh, government. So these things are not kind of randomly distributed among, among countries, and so I found that countries can, in fact, be placed on a continuum from the very majoritarian on the one hand uh, to, on the other hand, what I call consensus systems. And there are, there are a number of countries that are in between. And uh, the same thing goes for another dimension of that, is the, what I call the, the federal unitary dimension, uh, which is based on the idea of federalism and decentralization versus unitary and centralized government. But then again, the kind of the legislatures that countries have, the kind of court system that countries have, falls into a pattern along the same lines. Uh, so this, right. Yeah, go ahead. You've kind of touched on the main thrust of the book, that different democracies, according to their institutions, can be divided between consensus and majoritarian, or at least they can be placed on that spectrum. Is that right? That's correct. That helps bring some simplicity to all the institutions you've been mentioning, or at least helps to put them in perspective. Right, right. And, and, and you, to get back to your, your previous question, how did I arrive at this? It was really kind of a step step by step. I was looking at divided societies and what kind of democracy did they have. Then I, looked, I started looking at democratic institutions, and I started trying to map all, all of this. And basically, the, the kind of thing that we, we are just talking about has to do with the fact that at first glance, things look very complicated. It looks like there's so many differences between different countries. But in fact, if you try to categorize these things, a much simpler pattern emerges. 
Right. So part of that pattern is what you call the executive party's dimension. And this dimension includes components like the electoral system and the party system. How does this help us understand the patterns that democracies fall into? The, the real distinction is between concentration of power on, on the one hand, concentration of power in the, in the majority versus joint power uh, for all the different groups or for many, many different, different groups. So I call that dimension the executive party's dimension because it has to do with characteristics of executive power and the uh, the party system, the electoral system, and the interest group system. So there are actually five characteristics to to this which which tend to hang together. One is distinction between one party government versus coalition government, or it is more exactly kind of like one power, a single power, relatively narrow government versus broad power-sharing coalition cabinets. A second character has to do with executive power. In majoritarian systems, uh, the executive is all-important. Think about it all, all the time. My main example, uh, like almost a perfect example for majoritarianism, is the British system of government, but the cabinet is all important, and parliament is an interesting uh, institution where lots of interesting debates take, take place, but basically the, the, the government has the support of the majority of parliament and can basically do what it wishes to do. In consensus systems, uh, where there's power sharing, the, uh, the executive is much less dominant, so I talk there about executive legislative balance. And in the British type of system, it's uh, ex executive uh, dominance. And then there's the distinction between the two-party system, with one party being in, in power and the other party being in op opposition in, in, in Britain versus a multi-party system and consensus system. And that, again, has to do with, uh, with a majoritarian system of elections in the, um, on the majoritarian side and proportional representation on the uh, on the other side. And with regard to the interest group system, that is the fifth uh, characteristic. Uh, the distinction is between, on the, easier to understand perhaps on the consensus uh, side, where the different uh, interest groups are, first of all, uh, tend to be integrated into larger confederations, so kind of a large confederation of, of labor. There's one large employer's association, one large farmers association, and then they are tied together in almost like permanent uh, negotiating situation. Uh, so that is, uh, is in the literature is called a corporatist uh, interest group system versus, on the other hand, a pluralist interest group system where there you have a, a multitude of competing interest groups that are all trying to get the best deal without being coordinated as in the consensus system. Now all of these. Uh, so on the on the majoritarian side, I have majoritarian elections, single-party government, a dominant executive, uh, majoritarian electoral system, and a free-for-all interest group system. And those characteristics tend to hang together. So if a country, for instance, you know, is, is typically has a two-party system, it also tends to have these other characteristics. On the other hand, a country that, that, that's a proportional representation on a multi-party system, it tends to have those other characteristics. 
So again, it's not just like there is a chaos of characteristics. No, these things hang together. And if a country is main, mainly has those majoritarian characteristics, I call it a majoritarian democracy. If a country has mainly the uh, consensus characteristics, I call it a consensus democracy. Now, what I also do in the book is I quantify and measure all of these variables. So if you have a, a coalition government or not, I measure over a period of time what percent of, of time a country has a coalition government versus single-party government. Uh, you, you can measure with regard to the electoral system. There are lots of different electoral systems, but one thing that you can measure is how proportional is in practice the electoral system. That is to say, how, how much discrepancy is there between the results of an election in terms of votes and the results of an election in terms of seats. And, and so that determines how proportional the system is. So all of these characteristics can be quantified, and then you, you can add them up and assign a place to, to every country that is involved. And in my book, I have 36 countries. All of those can be placed on a continuum between majoritarian democracy on one hand and consensus democracy on the other. So that is Thank you. one dimension. Yes. Do you want me to go into the second right, dimension? Right, right. Well, I, I already have some questions for okay. you. We've been using the word majoritarian to describe systems in which power is concentrated. Mm -hmm. As you note, these majoritarian systems don't always put a majority of the people in power. Right. Um, and they've even been called pluralitarian. Right. Um, could you explain word majoritarian and how well you think it describes the reality. Yeah, the, uh, I think majoritarian is, uh, is actually still a good term because the, uh, in, in majoritarian system, think again of the British system, which is a, a good example both because it is better known to more, more people than, say, the system of Austria or, 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 or Norway. Uh, and because it is a, a, a such a nice and clear example of, of, of majoritarian government, it is actually the, the, the majorities that you get in Parliament are majorities in terms of the seats in Parliament. They are not necessarily majorities in terms of the votes or majorities of, of voters that support the government. So in a way, they are what has been called artificial or manufactured majorities, but the whole the whole system is geared toward getting that majority in Parliament, which will then make a single-party government possible, and which also then tends to, to mean that the executive is the dominant force. And that also requires a, a two-party system. No, in, in, in fact, the critique of this, and that would also be my critique, is that while the system is geared to manufacture these majorities, it manufactures these majorities out of minorities of the voters. And as I point out in my book, in Britain since 1945, no British government that has supposedly a majoritarian government has actually been supported by a majority of the voters. And the last time that the Labour government uh, was uh, voted into office, I think that was in 2005, uh, the Labour Party won a majority of the seats in Parliament with about 35% of the vote. So, in fact, it rep represented only slightly more than a third uh, of, of all of the of voters. But the system, the majoritarian system of elections, which is the one that we in America are familiar with, uh, which is the, the single-member strict 
with the candidate that wins the most votes uh, wins, even though you know the most votes may not be a majority of, of the votes, and that leads to overrepresentation in general of the majority party, and in some cases a gigantic overrepresentation, as in the example that I just mentioned, when 35% of the voters, in fact, installed a, a majority government in in, in London. Uh, it can also give rise to I mean, that that's a system that we are familiar with in in, in the United States. Um, it can give rise to to actually uh, the the party winning a minority of the votes and another party winning more uh, votes uh, that the mi- minority party uh, actually wins the majority of the of the seats. That in in Britain has uh, happened in only once since the Second World War in 1951, and it gave rise to uh, quite a bit of unhappiness, especially on the part of the the losing party, which was the Labour Party, which had won more votes than the Conservatives, but the Conservatives won more seats. In the case of New Zealand, it happened twice in 1978 and in 1981, where the Labour Party won more votes, but the National Party, even though winning fewer votes, uh, got the most seats, and that caused such an uproar uh, in New Zealand that it, it eventually led to a complete change in the electoral system, and in fact, the shift, uh, a very big shift, to proportional uh, representation. In that connection, I think it's interesting to note that the last uh, House of Representatives election in the United States, also conducted by single single member district plurality system, that the Democrats won uh, more than a million more votes than the Republicans. But of course, the Republicans uh, managed to win a majority in the uh, in, in, in the House. And one of the things that surprises me is that there is more of an outcry about that in the in, in, in the United States. In the, the last election, that's the 2012, into the House, it's even more clearly a manufactured majority, manufactured by the Republican Party uh, when they did their uh, redistricting uh, in and after the uh, census of 2010, they deliberately created districts uh, that they would win with relatively small majorities and letting votes uh, in Democratic districts pile up. Uh, and, and therefore, it's not only a manufactured in the sense that it, it made a minority uh, into the majority, but the manufacturing was very deliberate. And uh, I'm actually kind of disappointed in my fellow citizens in the United States in that there isn't more of an outcry about it, that it isn't even front-page uh, news. And surprising, too, that the Democratic Party doesn't make m- more out, out of this uh, when the Republicans in the House uh, are uh, obstructing what the what the Democratic president and a Democratic majority Senate want, that they don't keep say, okay, well, you have a majority in the House, but how legitimate is your majority? And in fact, it's entirely manufactured, so don't have such a big mouth. That's very interesting, and it could be a another discussion, and and I I hope it will be. But right, right. Uh, this, this, to, goes to outside, keep, this goes beyond I, my book. right. I, although the book is a great way to prepare yourself to uh, appreciate those kind of distinctions. You, you've answered my question about majoritarian refers to majorities in the legislature. Right. Is the same true of the term consensus? That it only applies to what happens in the legislature, or do consensus democracies also enable consensus among voters? 
I think that basically, I guess the, your, the first alternative is uh, what uh, I would support, because I'm mainly talking about institutions, so that consensus means coalition building, it means uh, having ma many, many parties, but that uh, are all uh, drawn into the governing process. Uh, it means that interest groups are coordinated and try to cooperate uh, as, as much as possible instead of uh, just fighting uh, fighting each other and, and so on. So the, the question that is, I, I guess at the very end of the book I talk, talk about this, is what, uh, is it just institutions or is it, is, is it culture? And why do some certain societies uh, institute the, these consensus systems. And I think it has to do with, in, in fact, uh, consensus systems are instituted in those countries where uh, basic popular consensus is lacking. They are meant to create more consensus where originally the consensus is, is absent. And so, for instance, the question sometimes uh, I'm, I'm asked, uh, if my example of consensus democracy, which is Switzerland, I say, well, but that's that's easy because in Switzerland everybody is they have different languages, of course, and also different religion, but basically homogeneous, everything works fine. But in fact, in Switzerland there have been uh, there have been a whole series of civil wars between the people, and it's only recently that the country has become so so peaceful. And why is this? Well, because they went through this process of deciding that they should do something about this lack of consensus and create a consensus type of democracy, in, and, and, and that has led to a greater consensus among the, uh, among the people. I would say, still say the same thing about uh, my native country of the, of the Netherlands. Even when I, was, when I was young, the differences between the different groups of people were still very, very, very sharp. But gradually, these differences have, uh, have, have solved, partly because, I think, I was about to say partly because, but I think mainly, mainly because uh, the system was, was geared to getting, getting different groups to uh, cooperate and giving the different groups a feeling of safety so they did not, did not feel threatened uh, by the other groups. And as a result, uh, in, in, in fact, the, the, the basic consensus among the people has, uh, has improved a great deal in, in, in the Netherlands. So it sounds like while majoritarian systems put a minority in charge, consensus systems uh, enable different groups to be mediated? Right. I think that's, uh, okay. that, is, that is correct. And in fact, and that goes back to an earlier, your earlier question about is majoritarian the right, uh, the right word. Obviously, in these majoritarian democracies, as I've said, it's actually the largest minority often that's in, 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 in charge. Whereas when you look at the governments in consensus democracies that, that are coalition governments, and when you look at how many people have uh, voted for the parties that are in the government, that tends to be, in consensus system, at least a majority of the, of, of the people. So a government that is supported, as in, in, in Britain at one point, by just 35% of the, of, of the people, that, that would just really be quite un unusual, I would say, or even, even impossible. I don't know any instance of that in a, in a consensus system where, <coughs> where that a government has such a narrow popular basis. So consensus groups are actually better at putting majorities of the people in power. Is that right? 
that, that's correct. I think at one point, not in this, this book, but in an article, uh, I have an article or a chapter uh, that is uh, called Who Really Supports Majority Rule? And uh, my answer is, you know, it, 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 as, uh, in answer to your question now, in fact, the consensus systems are, are better at creating actual majority rule. Let me return to an earlier factor you brought up within this executive party dimension, corporatism and pluralism. You use the word corporatism in a way that has a long history, probably not familiar to a lot of people, at least a lot of people in the United States who think of corporations when they hear the word corporatism. But yeah. could you explain how, how you're using the word? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it just happens to be a, a term that has become... Uh, of the accepted term in, in political science. It's often also incorporated with, uh, say, fascist uh, rule. And under fascist rule, uh, all of the, the interest groups were uh, kind of put under the control of the, of the state and they were coordinated, but they were not, not, not free. There was not a free type of, uh, of coordination. And in distinction to, to that, uh, for democratic system, we talk about deocorporatism or democratic uh, corporatism. A better, perhaps a better descriptive term that would be easier for lay people to understand uh, would be to, to call it um, a uh, coordinated, uh, coordinated and cooperative uh, in interest group system as opposed to a con conflictual uh, in interest group system. And in the in the, the typical the, the the most extreme or the most thorough of these corporates interest group systems, which what, what you tend to have, and I'm thinking there of the example of Austria, uh, Norway, and Sweden, to some extent Germany, certainly also Holland. Pattern is one in which, first of all, the different the different labor unions are are coordinated with each other, so that you have one large labor union confederation, and similarly, that you have one large group of of employers organization that can can speak with one voice and that can can speak for all of their uh, constituents, and that have. Uh, then together with uh, often farmers associations uh, that meet on a regular basis with representatives of the government to iron out these kind of socio-economic and financial uh, problems. In, in Holland, there was actually a permanent council called the Social Economic Council, which, which was a, a body kind of next to parliament, but just a, a negotiating body, but quite a powerful body because when they came up with recommendations, which were then supported by labor unions, by employers, by farmers' organizations. Parliament could still decide otherwise, but, but usually they would just accept whatever, whatever compromise that has come out of that. And that is very different from a situation where either these organizations are very weak or not existing at all, and they all just compete with each other, which is more this system as in the United States and in Canada and in Britain. In the United States, of course, there's the AFL-CIO, which is an overarching labor organization, but it's very weak and it does not do a very good job at kind of bundling all of the labor unions uh, that are associated uh, with, with it. So it's almost compared with this, this similar organization in Sweden and Austria, it's almost like an empty shell. So the alternative to, to corporatism or coordination, pluralism, which you, you also call competition, but it's 
competition of a particular kind where labor is the weaker party? Uh, that is, I think that is usually the, uh, the, the, the case, even though in corporatism, too, there are differences in how strong employers are on the one hand, labor unions are on, on, on the other hand. In Sweden, for instance, I think the labor unions have to be more dominant. In Japan, specifically, uh, which tends to be on the corporatism side, uh, the employers have had, uh, tended to be uh, tended to have the the upper hand. Uh, but the, the the most important thing is that uh, that uh, the, the unions themselves, so the separate unions and the, the separate em- employers uh, groups, uh, simply try to get as as much of an advantage for themselves without really thinking of the interest of of other labor unions or other employers organizations. So in pluralist systems, not only is there competition between the employers and the unions, but there's competition among the unions. They're not coordinated. Uh, I think that is that is correct. E- either kind of like open co- comp- competition or a competition in the sense that there is no coordination of the, of the demands and interests of the different groups. Well, perhaps we should move to your second dimension, which is the federal unitary dimension. Sure. Again, the uh, the idea is really again to to think of the different institutions in terms of uh, does this is mean a concentration of power? Does it mean uh, mean uh, uh, in this case not some of the sharing of power, but a, a dividing uh, of, uh, of of power? And so the, the the first thing that comes to mind is the, in, in a unity, unitary and centralized system. Obviously, you have concentration of power. In a federal and decentralized system, you have uh, the, the, the division of power, uh, so the, the opposite of, uh, of, of concentration. And then uh, there are uh, other institutional characters that hang together uh, with, with this. I mean, is, is the legislature a unicameral legislature in which all power is concentrated in a single house of the legislature, or is it a, a bicameral system, in which there are not only two houses of the legislature, but those two houses have a different composition or, or uh, e- elected according to different rules, sometimes have different powers and so on. So that means more, again, of a division uh, of power. Uh, then uh, there's also the question of the highest courts in a country, Supreme Court or Constitutional Court in some uh, countries. How much power is given to those, to those courts? How much separate power is given to those courts? There are countries like the United States which have very strong judicial review where Supreme Courts are very important separate branches of, of, the, of the government. In other countries, like actually and a good example is my native uh, Netherlands, obviously the court system is a separate system. Uh, but the courts do not have the power of judicial review. In fact, the Dutch Constitution says specifically the courts are not to to uh, to test the constitutionality of laws passed by uh, by Parliament. So that means more of a concentration of power. If you have courts with very strong judicial power, uh, you have more of a separation of power. Then I guess that's the, my, the third characteristic. The fourth characteristic has to do with uh, with constitutions and who writes a constitution. Can constitutions be written and amended 
by a simple majority, that would mean a concentration of power, or do you need uh, you know, special, extraordinary majorities or complicated uh, procedures uh, to change the Constitution? In other words, is the Constitution a flexible one, which is majoritarian, <laughs> or is it a rigid Constitution? And then the fifth characteristic has to do with central banks. Are central banks in a country very powerful, and are they therefore, again, a separate source of power, or are central banks, and all democracies have central banks, are they relatively powerless and under the direction of the, the executive, which would mean a concentration of power. So you have this concentration, again, versus division of power, and these things tend to go together. When countries that are federal and decentralized tend to have uh, rigid constitutions, they tend to have bicameral uh, legislatures, they uh, tend to have central banks that, that are, are powerful, unitary and centralized systems of government tend to have unicameral parliaments, flexible, flexible constitutions, and relatively weak central banks. So again, you know, there, there are lots of possibilities of these characteristics in different countries, but there's also a clear pattern uh, to them. Uh, so that can, you know, we, we can we can quantify all of these characteristics. We can operationalize them, give 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 numbers to how weak, how strong uh, different institutions are. You can you can add those up, and you can decide on the whole a country is more on the federal side or more on the unitary side. I should point out that the book is very empirical. There is a lot of measuring. A lot of the conclusions are arrived at through statistical analysis, looking at quantitative aspects of institution. What did that tell you about which institutions lend themselves more to democracy? Well, the, 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 the main part of the book has to do with these basic 10 characteristics. Uh, and uh, as you, you say, I spent quite a bit of time explaining how I operationalize and quantify uh, these uh, these variables. But I should uh, also say right away to uh, for potential readers of, of the book, I'm not using terribly complicated statistics. It's mainly really quite simple, and in fact, I think it's almost self-explanatory. Even even though I think it is useful if one knows a little bit of regression and correlation analysis. But regression and correlation analysis is just about the simplest statistics uh, that one can deal with. And compared with other books in political science, my book, it's all relatively simple. But the, the, the quantification yeah. helps in terms of you know, putting the whole theory together. Yes, what I do in the, at the end of the book, the last two main chapters of the book, uh, deal with the question of, uh, I guess I call it the so what uh, question. Uh, and uh, at that point, the reader might ask, okay, so you, you have show, shown that some countries tend to be more majoritarian, more uh, consensual, uh, some are more federal, some are more unitary in their overall uh, characteristics. Uh, that is all very, very nice, and uh, it, it, it helps uh, to, to see patterns in everything, but does it make a difference? Uh, and so I ask in the last two, two questions, does it, does it make a difference in terms of uh, uh, how effective the government is uh, and in certain democratic uh, uh, values? Uh, and for, for both uh, of, the, of these questions, again, I use, again, use uh, quantitative uh, indicators. 
for the question of how how effective is the uh, government, I can use measures like how much inflation is there, how much economic growth. In other words, how well does a, a government manage the economy of a, of, of a country? And all of these are, uh, are, are quantitative measures, so we, 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 can, we can judge that uh, objectively. There are also, in recent years, there are more and more uh, data available based on on expert judgments on you know how how effective a government is how much honesty there is versus corruption in a government all of these are, are measures developed by other people which means that I can kind of use them without uh, without the possibility of being accused of, of cooking my numbers I, I am just not making up these these numbers I'm just using what what other people have already arrived at or in the case of inflation unemployment economic growth uh, budget deficits and so on uh, what what the economists uh, and what what official government uh, figures uh, show now I should say right away to, to them I'm talking about one one of these aspects which is how how effective uh, is a, uh, our governments at, uh, at, at at governing? I find there that uh, the, the differences are not enormous, but on, on the whole, consensus governments do uh, do better. Uh, now, let me also say right away that on the other dimension, the federal unitary dimension, I do not find that there are significant differences between uh, between countries. Uh, I, I so, think that for large countries, there are advantages in, in, in having federalism, decentralization, but it does not have much of an effect uh, on the question of how, how effectively uh, a government is, is, is run. Right. And, and then you also look at the quality of democracy. Yeah. And, and, and I look at the quality of democracy, and again, there, uh, to, to say that right away, uh, on, on the dimension of federalism versus unitary government, I do not find that there's much of a, a difference. But there I find this really major differences uh, between consensus government and majoritarian government. And, and consensus government tend to, to score much higher on, on democratic uh, 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 on, on democratic values. And again, there are, uh, especially in the last 10 years or so, uh, a lot of measures have been developed about the level of democracy, uh, but we can go look at, look at simple simple things like uh, uh, voter turnout. I mean, voter turnout is a good good measure of uh, quality of democracy because it, it, when you have a lower turnout, it means that the, the people in a country are not really interested in the in, in the democracy. Uh, with a higher voter turnout, it's obviously better from a, a democratic uh, point of view. We can look at uh, well how my, well minorities are represented, or especially how well women are represented. How many, how how equ how equally, or how how uh, what what degree of inequality is there still in representation between men and women in in parliaments and in the uh, in, in in the government. And on those kinds of, of measures, uh, the consensus uh, the democracy are just overwhelmingly uh, better than, uh, than majoritarian systems. So if you add up the two things, effective government, where consensus democracies are at least slightly better, and in terms of democratic quality, they are overwhelmingly better, it's obvious that my choice as to what is the better form of government, it's consensus democracy. 
So let me uh, let me play the devil's advocate and ask you about Italy. How do you respond to those that say the uh, systems of proportional representation are less governable or, or, or can can lead to the kind of uh, turmoil that Italy is not only experiencing now, but say has experienced for much of the last half century. Yeah, I mean Italy is uh, when you when you look look at it, and actually when you look at uh, quite a few of, of consensus democracies, it looks like there is a, a lot of fighting and, and backbiting, uh, but in in the end uh, they often do do come together, and that was true for it in Italy for a long long time. Uh, where, um, in fact, there's this an, an old book written in the 1990s, I think 1980s, 1990s, by um, a real an Italy expert, uh, ex, uh, expert uh, Joe La Palombara, who was a professor at at Yale University and who obviously had Italian uh, background. And he was saying that you know that all of this this fighting is on the surface. In the when when it comes to making policy, Italy is actually pretty pretty consensual. Uh, the communist party is kept out of power, but behind the scenes they they negotiate with the other uh, with the other parties. And in terms of economic growth, of course, since the Second World War until say about in the mid 1990s, uh, Italy did much better than Britain. Because Britain looks like it's much better governed, but 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 Italy in fact had the the, the better uh, economic uh, economic growth. Uh, now this, the current situation in Italy is obviously not uh, not very good at all, uh, and uh, my my figures do not include the current situation. I, I stopped in 20, uh, 20, 2010. Uh, now if I had pulled it up to twenty thirteen. Probably not. Uh, wouldn't be all that much different because I take averages over a long uh, period of, of of time in order to even out, you know, certain uh, certain differences, certain certain changes in cert- certain countries. It's better to look at the uh, at, at at the long long haul. Uh, and certainly for a long time, as you said, you know, Italy does not look like it's the the, the best example of a, a, a rational, effective. Uh, government. You might say the same thing of, of another proportional representation countries uh, such as such as Israel. Uh, on the other hand, you know there are also, there are also uh, uh, I guess if you had been the devil's advocate, you might say, well, perhaps these these uh, these uh, proportional consensual systems work well because you have the Scandinavian countries in your uh, in your uh, uh, sample. But then I would say, yeah, I have the Scandinavian countries in there, but there's also Belgium, there's Israel, there's there's Italy, and so on. So I'm not just using the countries that everybody says, you know, those those are successful, uh, those are successful countries. I simply take, uh, and, and I guess that's just an objective thing. I take all of the countries that have been democratic for a minimum of uh, 20. Uh, let's see, do I take that 20 years? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, and 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 then I look at their their overall characteristics. So there are some countries that do better, some countries that do do, do not not as well. But on the whole, these consensus systems uh, do uh, do 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 better. Uh, and I think we are often um, the, this this truth is obscured because people think, uh, and that was the the view in political science for a long time. That what you what you need for effective government is decisive government, and the government that can can make uh, decisions quickly, 
uh, that can make firm uh, decisions and and the you know because the the model for that again was uh, uh, was 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 Britain. Uh, now the, the the theoretical counter argument to that is uh, yes, I mean, there are advantages to being able to make uh, uh, decisions fast if necessary and to make uh, to make firm uh, decisions. Uh, but you know, fast decisions are not necessarily the uh, the best decisions, often it's better not to, to decide things so so fast and to have more discussion and negotiation before you arrive at, uh, uh, at, 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 at a, a final uh, policy. And it's indicative in the case of, of Britain uh, that uh, one of the, the really strong prime ministers since the Second World War, Margaret Thatcher, uh, who is often described as the, the Iron Lady and uh, who held her members of the cabinet under control and who really controlled uh, parliament, she was undone by one of these fast decisions, this, this so-called poll tax uh, decision, which is too complicated to explain here, <laughs> but which turned out to be a disastrous decision. And why was it made so fast? Because, because she could do it. She had the power, she could do it, she did it, and it turned out to be a terrible, uh, a, a, a terrible decision. Uh, it's another reason why countries like Britain and even more the United States uh, do not do as as well in terms of uh, the the economy, and that is their single member district elections. And we have that you have members of parliament representing certain districts in the country, and what they try to do is to get advantage mm. for their districts, which is not necessarily the most rational and effective uh, solution for the whole country. Uh, so that, of course, in the United States, we know too why are military installations in in, in particular districts. It is because of political pressure and political uh, advantages. Uh, not necessarily the best thing for the, the country as a whole. So there are real inefficiencies in systems that are decentralized to, uh, to, to, to this, this kind of uh, uh, extent. Whereas if, if you have a, a governments that uh, are, are not so beholden uh, to uh, special geographically concentrated uh, interest can can be more uh, effective and efficient. You you note in the book that um, these consensus democracies might be the result not so much of any one institution, but rather that these institutions uh, might all be the result of cultures mm-hmm. of consensus. Uh, what is a culture of of consensus? How do you understand that? I would understand that when there's just a greater kind of a homogeneity in terms of interests and feelings among the uh, among among the people. When when feelings, especially when you have a divided society, let's say between as in, in Switzerland and in Netherlands and Germany, between between Catholics and Protestants, uh, when uh, both communities feel uh, feel that they are safe. Uh, in the uh, pursuit of, of their religion, that they uh, they do not have to to to, to fear uh, being being dominated by the uh, by by the other uh, group. It does not mean that everybody thinks the same, uh, but that there's a, a, a basic uh, understanding of the the, the rights uh, to be uh, to be to be different. And I think that institutions. Uh, power-sharing institutions can help that kind of attitude. And at the same time, when you do find that among the people 
there is less animosity, less uh, mutual fear, that obviously then makes it easier for the leaders to arrive at compromises because they don't have to, to fear the backlash of their voters. So I think culture and structure, culture and institutions uh, tend to be mutually, uh, mutually related. If there were one thing that a country could do uh, to promote a culture of consensus, would you have a recommendation for that? Yeah, I would, I would think uh, the, 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 one of the, the, the things that can be introduced and, and in fact some people have said that one, as, as political scientists, as, as political system designers we can manipulate is the electoral system. If you start with, <clears throat> I guess there, there are two things. One is an electoral system of proportional representation, and two is a parliamentary system of government rather than a presidential uh, system of government. Uh, if you have those those two uh, factors in in a country, uh, the country is likely to to be to have consensus uh, institutions because proportional representation, if it is uh, you know if there are not too many limits to the proportionality. It will mean a multi-party system. It'll probably mean coalition government, and it'll it'll mean more of a balance between executive and and legislature. So that already helps with a great deal. And then also, if it's a parliamentary system where the the different uh, parties can form a government that is based on a majority in in, in parliament, in a presidential system. Now the problem, of course, is that presidential systems, in their very nature, are majoritarian uh, elections. There can be only one; only one president can be elected. Uh, there, there, there's a clear winner, and there are the other uh, candidates or candidates are, are losers. And so, you build in uh, some um, majoritarianism right there. In the case of the United States, of course, that is connected with a, a two-party system and the majoritarian uh, election uh, system. So in, if, if you want to avoid majoritarianism, if you want to in, introduce consensus, do two things, and that's proportional representation and a parliamentary system of government. Thank you. Um, uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Be before we go, I'd, I'd like to ask you... Um, uh, two two questions, and, and maybe they're related. Uh, the first is, uh, when you looked at this extended period, the original book, you looked at democracy from uh, starting with 1945 to 1996, I believe. Right. And in the, in the update, you added the period 1996 to 2010. Right. Um, has that changed your ideas at all about the direction democracy in the world is going. Uh, and, and the second question is whether uh, you have any projects that you're working on next, because I, I presume um, they would have something to do with democracies. Right. Uh, well, but to answer the first question, actually in my book, also toward, toward the end, I asked the question of, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I put countries... I mean, I, I label countries as uh, with a, having a certain degree of majoritarian, having a certain uh, degree of, uh, of federalism versus uni unitary government, and so on. Uh, over the long period, how have things changed? 
And what I do for, for that is to divide that period from 1945 to 2010 into roughly, uh, two roughly equal uh, periods, and I compare uh, where countries are before that time and after that time. And on the whole, I find that there is very little change. Uh, so these, these things tend to be, uh, I mean, institutions tend to be conservative. You don't change them uh, e easily. And you can see that very clearly, especially with regard to the electoral system, because in my 36 countries, um, how many uh, countries have changed from, uh, you know, the purely majoritarian elections to proportional representation? And the answer is one of those 36, namely New Zealand. Uh, and that has happened under very unusual circumstances that are too complicated to explain uh, to explain briefly. But basically, countries tend to stick. I mean, if, if a country is a, a stable, long-lasting democracy, they tend to stick with their uh, stick with their in institutions. Uh, so a, a whole lot of change, uh, you know, you you simply cannot can cannot expect. Uh, about the future uh, of publication, I'm, I am now 76 years old, and I basically decided I'm I'm not doing any uh, any major research any longer. But there is a, a project which has been underway for a long time. Uh, that is a collaborative project that I'm doing with uh, Bernie Grofman of the University of California, Irvine, uh, Matt Shugart. Uh, who is my colleague at the University of California, San Diego, but he has recently moved to the University of California in Davis, uh, and uh, uh, then uh, uh, Stephen Taylor, uh, who is at uh, uh, Troy University. Uh, and what uh, what we do, what, what this book is all about, is actually it, 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 it started with discussions that I had with Bernie Grofman about my book, Patterns of, of Democracy. And this uh, our uh, what we noticed was that we when we compare all of these countries, that the country that is the most difficult to fit in in terms of the classification is the United States. And the United States just seems to be the most different of these democracies. And we decided to to do that in a systematic way and look at at, at all kinds of characteristics of, of of government and ask where does the United States stand and where do do other countries stand? And so we have a we have a book uh, that is going to be called A Different Democracy. And the subtitle, I think, it's not quite certain certain yet, but it's something like American government in a 31 uh, country uh, comparison. We compare the United States systematically with 30 other uh, democracies, uh, and uh, on just a host of characteristics, we, we are looking at probably hundreds of characteristics, we, we, we find that the United States tends to be, uh, uh, in some cases, unique, in very many cases unique, and in almost all cases at least unusual. Uh, so that I mean the, the the idea of it that this book is what 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 I've always had in, in in mind is that I would like this book to be used in the introductory course on American government, uh, where students learn about American government. Where where often the assumption is, uh, of course, you know we we need to learn about American government because we are American citizens. We need to know how the 
uh, how our own system works. But also, I think, an unspoken assumption that if we leave, learn about American democracy, we learn something about democracy in general. And, and, and we want to uh, kind of disabuse them of, of that, that idea, uh, because the United States is, in fact, very different uh, from most, most, other, uh, most other democracies. And, and just, uh, as I said, just about, just about every, uh, every respect, let me just, just mention one example. We are so uh, accustomed in the United States to have primary elections. They're almost primary elections in advance of any, uh, any, any general election. Now, how many other countries have primary elections? Well, some countries talk about that, but they're not like the American primary elections are e- elections that are not run by the parties. They're run by the political system. They're run by the government. They're not voluntary. They're mandatory. And they are open to just to every voter. You don't have to be a formal member of, of a party. Now, these characteristics of American primaries we do not find in any other democracy. The United States is absolutely unique in that in that respect. And so there, you know, there, 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 I, I, I think we would need another hour to uh, to go into lots lots more detail about uh, uh, about that. But the the, the title of, of of the book in, indicates it. It's called a different democracy, and that different democracy is American democracy. And when can we expect to see that on the shelves? We have uh, we're just about to sign a contract with Yale University Press for for that book, and I think it should be out by not later than the middle of next year. And I'm actually hoping that it'll be available by say about March or April of next year. Aaron Leipart, thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure for me too. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Aaron Leipart on the second edition of his book, Patterns of Democracy, published by Yale University Press in 2012.